Amen. I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 13. We're working our way through the book of Romans and have been for the last, uh, well, I guess this is the 13th week. I think we've covered a chapter a week. And um, uh, the 13th chapter, Paul kind of changes gears a little bit. Rather than speaking specifically or um, in a specific manner uh, in his instruction, he's going to go with uh, a little bit broader themes. The 13th chapter covers three different points, three main points. And the first one is uh, our attitude or what our attitude should be towards civil government. And uh, so we're going to start in Romans chapter 13, verse 1. I'm going to read the uh, first uh, five verses, I think, from uh, the complete Jewish Bible. It's, uh, it's a little bit easier to understand, and, and uh, uh, there's not a lot of uh, um, verses in this chapter that, that really need specific explanation or, or historical context or anything like that. Uh, and it's a shorter chapter, so it gives us some time to uh, kind of hit some side issues and, and uh, related, related points. So in, Genesis, in uh, Romans chapter 13, beginning in verse 1, again, I'm reading from the complete Jewish Bible. He says, everyone, speaking of the church, everyone is to obey the governing authorities, for there is no authority that is not from God. And the existing authorities have been placed where they are by God. Now, he's not saying the people that are in those positions are placed by God. He's saying God's the one who set up civil government. It doesn't mean that God decided how many Supreme Court judges there'd be or anything like that, but it says that God set up the, gov- the, um, the system of government. But you know as well as I do that Satan claims to have gained control of it when he offers Jesus the kingdoms of the world, all the authority of the kingdoms of the world. So at the fall, uh, the civil government that God intended to, um, uh, or, or God's plan, God's system, was taken over by the, by the enemy through Adam's transgression. So here he's talking about the existing authorities that have been placed where they are by God. Again, he's talking about the offices. It's, uh, it's interesting to me in our political system here in the country, uh, in America, uh, you'll always hear when, uh, when the Democrats are in the White House, uh, you'll always hear complaints from the news media that people aren't respecting the office and respecting the president. Uh, they, uh, they, and it's, it seems to be an attempt to shut down criticism. But when a Republican's in the presidential office, then the idea of criticism seems to be open, open warfare, open fair game, you know, type thing. But it, this is what Paul is talking about. He's saying you don't have to recognize uh, or you don't have to think and shouldn't think that an ungodly person is put in the office by God, but the office is, itself is of the Lord. So everyone is to obey the governing authorities, for there is no authority that is not from God. And the existing authorities have been placed where they are by God. You remember that uh, when Jesus uh, stood before Pilate, uh, Pilate claimed to have authority to either set him loose or, or punish him or whatever. And Jesus said, you wouldn't have any authority whatsoever if it wasn't given to you from God. And that shut Pilate down because he recognized there was something about what Jesus said and the way that he said it, perhaps, that just shut him down. He realized that his place and his position was from a higher authority than himself. And it wasn't just what he wanted to do or what he decided to do. He better tread carefully on uh, making his decision. Verse 2, Therefore, whoever resists the authorities is resisting what God has instituted. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are no terror to good conduct but to bad. Now, again, he's not talking about wicked men in office. He's talking about the offices themselves. This is the way the offices are supposed to run. Paul's had some experience where that's not always the case. But he's talking about the offices and how the offices are supposed to operate. 
Rulers are no terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you like to be unafraid of the person in authority? Then simply do what is good, and you will win his approval. For he is God's servant, there for your benefit. Now, the King James says minister. It's the same word that's used for uh, ministering spirits, talking about the angels. It's the same word that's used for the ministry of the Old Testament priest. Paul puts them in the same category of doing the work of God. And again, he's talking about the office and not necessarily the man. For he is God's servant, talking about the ruler, there for your benefit. But if you do what is wrong, be afraid, because it is not for nothing that he holds the power of the sword. For he is God's servant there as an avenger to punish wrongdoers. Another reason to obey besides fear of punishment is for the sake of conscience. Now, one of the things that's, um, uh, that's interesting is Paul in uh, uh, Acts chapter 23, verse 1. Paul stood before the rulers, civil government authorities, King Agrippa, and he said, Men and brethren, I've lived in all good conscience before God and man unto this day. Paul never spoke of the conscience without being specific in what the conscience is. The conscience is the voice of your spirit. He defines it and identifies it as the voice of your spirit. And literally he's saying your conscience, your spirit will always lead you to obey the civil authority. Yeah, but some people want to say, yeah, but what if the civil authority tells you to violate your conscience? Well, your conscience doesn't belong to the authorities. Your conscience belongs to you, your spirit. And should be governed by the Holy Spirit and the word of God on the inside of you. So if that situation ever does arise, then your conscience is going to lead you into what in the right thing to do. But remember, Paul is talking to people that are in Rome. Rome is the seat of the of the world authority. The Roman government is in full swing at this point in time. It's coming to the end of uh, of its um, several hundred years of rule. But it's still the greatest power on the earth, the greatest governmental power on the earth. And the fact that he's writing to Rome, to a church that he's never been to before, and, and this church has been going for several years. We don't know how many is, is uh, many, but he talks about it being going for many years. Um, Paul has experienced some, uh, uh, he has a great deal of experience with civil authorities in different parts of the world, all under the Roman government. Now, you know as well as I do, Historically, and, and it's easy to see this in, in uh, America where Washington, D.C. is concerned, the capital city is always the most highly regulated and the most, uh, has the most laws and the most restrictions and the most control exercised over the people of anybody on the face of the earth. It's always the case. Now, the reason for that, we assume, I assume, is because the lawmakers do whatever they can to make things convenient for wherever they live and wherever they are. These laws are generally made to control and regulate the activities and the behavior of other people because most lawmakers exempt themselves from the laws that they, that they pass. And that's not just an American thing. I mean, that certainly is true here in America. But that's not just an American thing. That's been true throughout the history of the world. It's just the way the, the devil system works. And so when Paul's talking to the church, he's writing to them because they are in a position to be the most oppressed people the most oppressed group of people on the face of the earth. Now, at this point in time, when Paul writes this, uh, most Bible scholars uh, believe that Paul wrote this uh, into his second missionary journey. Well, if you track on a map where Paul went during his uh, uh, second missionary journey, he's already been to Philippi and been thrown in jail. He's been beaten. 
Every time Paul was thrown in jail, he was falsely accused. If anybody had a right to say that the government had done them wrong, it's Paul. If anybody had a right to claim a grievance against the way that the the civil governments operate, it's Paul. And in fact, because of several of Paul's uh, prison experiences have been made known throughout the world, and they would certainly know about them in Rome, there's probably a faction in the church. We don't know other than just traditional, uh, you know, tradition passed down through the church. We don't have any historical evidence of it for sure. But church tradition tells us that, uh, that there were, uh, because of Paul's imprisonment, and even before Paul was in prison, when he was one of the ones imprisoning the church, there were factions in the church and groups of people in the church, Christians, that would rise up and try to overthrow civil government. And so Paul squashes it with the principle of telling them that the civil government, that the people that are reading this letter or hearing it read, may be in direct opposition to, maybe violently opposed to. He's saying these people were set up by God. Don't fight them. It's, uh, it seems in our day and time, uh, more so as we go, it seems like some people are wanting to fight to take back the country. That's never been God's intent. God doesn't want to take over the country. He wants to get the people changed, born again, recreated. There'll never be an earthly government that operates righteously until Jesus comes back and sets it up here on the earth. And that seems to be part of what Paul is dealing with. And he says, we should want to do the right thing, not just for fear of punishment, but so that we're following the voice of our spirits for conscience sake. So the first point he's talking about is submit to, to the rulers, earthly rulers, because they are, or, are ordained of God. We'll pick up in verse uh, 6, and now I'll start reading from the King James again. It says, For this cause pay ye tribute also. I wish Paul hadn't told us to pay our taxes. But he did, didn't he? He's inspired by the Holy Ghost. It's almost like the Holy Ghost knew that we'd have to pay taxes. And a lot of them, it seems. For this reason or for this cause, pay ye tribute or taxes also, for they are God's ministers attending continually upon this very thing. Now, again, it doesn't mean that they're good people. It doesn't mean that they're doing the will or the work of God. It means God set up the system of government. And we should honor the system because it's what God put in place to help mankind. So he says, for the render, um, uh, therefore, verse 7, <coughs> excuse me, render, therefore, to all their dues, that's income taxes, tribute to whom tribute is due. I'm sorry, tribute is the income taxes, not the dues. Render, therefore, all to all their dues. In other words, pay everything that is due. Tribute or income tax would be the equivalent of income tax in our day. To whom tribute is due. Custom, that would be the equivalent of sales tax for us. To whom custom is due, fear to whom fear is due, honor to whom honor is due. Now, um, there are, um, well, how far do I want to go with this? Well, let me, let me just start on the next thing. Verse 8. Owe no man anything but to love one another, for he that loveth another has fulfilled the law. This verse of Scripture has been taken out of context and used by some people to say, See, you, you never should have any debt. Owe no man anything but to love. That is not what this is saying. It's on the heels of render to everyone what is due. Pay your taxes. 
pay the sales tax, income tax, whatever taxes you owe, pay your debts, but realize there's one debt that you can never pay, fully repay, and that's the debt of love. This is the second main point that Paul brings out in this chapter. Now, this second main point is very simply the debt that you will always owe is to love one another. And it shouldn't have anything to do. It shouldn't be a spiritual versus natural thing. Honor the governments. Honor the, the, uh, uh, the system of government that God uses to help and benefit and bless mankind. But there's a debt that you never will get paid, and that's the debt of love. It has nothing to do with physical or material debt. For example, the Bible says in the Old Testament that one of the blessings of Abraham was you'll lend to many nations and not borrow. Well, folks, if borrowing or going into debt is wrong, then lending to nations would be wrong too. You'd be contributing to their sin. So it can't mean that. It can't mean don't, don't go into debt. And some people have made big, major points out of this, and even some, uh, some preachers have gotten themselves in positions where they can pay, their, pay for their house debt-free and that kind of stuff and try to put that burden on somebody else. Well, that's not mine or yours or anybody else's burden to place upon somebody. That's between them and God. I've seen situations where God would lead churches and individuals to take out loans for certain things. Well, if God's leading them to do it, how can it be wrong? We had to go into debt on this building. Thank God we did. We'd still be meeting in the school building. Otherwise, setting up and tearing down every week. That gets old after a while. So you can't make a doctrine out of this. He's talking about there is a debt that can never be fully paid, and that is the law of love or the debt of love. He says, O no man anything but to love one another, for he that loveth another has fulfilled the law. For this thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. And if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this, saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. You remember that's what Jesus said? When the rich young ruler came to Jesus and, and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus talked to him about the, the, some of the Old Testament commandments, and he talked to him about love. He said the greatest commandment is love. In other words, what he's saying is the end result of even the Old Testament law, the, the Ten Commandments, was so that we'd walk in love. That's what it means where it says love is the fulfilling of the law. Walking in love gets you to the end result of what the Ten Commandments and the whole law of Moses was supposed to bring you to to begin with. So that's why he tells us to walk in love. Verse 10, love worketh no ill to his neighbor. If you walk in love towards somebody, you're not going to steal from them. If you walk in love towards somebody, you're not going to commit adultery with the husband or the wife. If you walk in love, you're not going to tell lies about somebody. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law, the end result of the law. Now, he's going to shift gears in verse 11 through verse 14 and talk about some uh, 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 one, the final point. But let me back up to the first point where it talks about submitting yourself to the local authorities or the civil authorities, civil government. Paul is certainly addressing something that he knows exists in the church um, at that present time. But it, there's, a, there's a deeper meaning, there's a deeper idea that goes, goes from this, and that is the concept of lawlessness. It's, uh, it's an interesting thing. First John three fourteen, I believe it is says that uh, it defines sin. It says, King James says, sin is the transgression of the law. That's a really, really bad, bad translation because transgression is not the word that's used there. It literally defines sin as lawlessness. Now, what is lawlessness? Lawlessness is a spirit 
of refusing control. And that's something that's at work in the, in the body of Christ. If we don't guard against it, it's certainly something that's at work in the world. It was in Paul's day and it is in our day. It's one of the things that the Bible says will be a, a characteristic or a, a sign of the, la- of the last days, of the end times. In fact, it says, uh, let me read to you from Second Thessalonians. Um, let me see if I can pull it up here quick. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, I believe it is, verses 7 and 8. You'll recognize these, uh, 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 these scriptures. It talks about the end times. Paul's talking about, um, um, well, I'm going to have to back up a little bit. Let me back up to Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 5. He said, remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things? He's talking about the Antichrist and the end times and so forth. And now you know what withholdeth that he might be revealed, talking about the Antichrist in his time. For the mystery of iniquity does already work. Only he who now letteth will let or prevent or hinder until he be taken out of the way. Now, the only thing that's going to be taken out of the way is not the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost is not the thing preventing the Antichrist. It's the church. As you can make an argument it's the Holy Ghost and the church, but it's still the church because we've been born again and recreated in the image of God. Verse 8 and says, And then shall that wicked be revealed when Jesus comes back and takes the church away from the earth. And then shall that wicked be revealed whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. The word wicked there, the word that's translated wicked is the word for lawlessness. It's animus. I'm not sure if I'm saying it right, right, but um, uh, it literally means lawlessness. In other words, it calls the Antichrist the lawless one. The lawless one. And in fact, the Bible speaks of... Um, um, it speaks of the, um, uh, the condition of the earth when the, uh, when the plagues and different things are starting to be poured out and so forth. It's talking about the world system. It says people repented not of their fornications, of their murders, of their sorceries, meaning drug use, and their thefts. In other words, lawlessness rules and reigns during the tribulation period. That's what this is saying. Now, what is lawlessness? Well, the spirit of lawlessness is at work in the earth now in, an, in a number of ways. One of the most um, obvious ways is look at how the police uh, forces and police departments nationwide are viewed differently now than they were just a couple of years ago. Now, all of a sudden, the the law enforcement officers, the law enforcement departments are the enemies of everybody. And another thing that you can can see at work is uh, the idea among uh, even church people where there's sympathy public sympathy for sin it's all part of the spirit of lawlessness now folks these things it's not breaking the law all these things were at work in the devil before god ever made man that was that was satan's issue he said i will exalt my throne above the heavens in other words he refused to set uh, be controlled or operate within the boundaries that god set for him he said i will make myself like the most high god in other words, he refused, knowing that God, no, get this, knowing that God was the eternal one, God was the creator, and that he, Satan, Lucifer, was a created being. He still said, I'm going to become like him, which is impossible. How would he not know that's impossible? But the whole issue is he refused to operate within the boundaries. 
He refused to operate within God's boundaries. Old Testament book of Psalms says this. Somewhere in the Psalms it says this. I don't know the reference, but you can look it up. It says sin is a, uh, rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. Well, what is rebellion? Rebellion is refusing to be controlled. Now, when you say it that way, it sounds like somebody's trying to dominate you and control you and stuff, but that's not the way God works. God sets boundaries for your benefit. He sets boundaries for, uh, because he loves us. But when somebody refuses to operate within those boundaries, rebels against those boundaries, I'm not talking about rebels against the law, whether it be the law of Moses or any other law. These things were in operation. This spiritual force was in operation before God ever made man to give him the law or even tell him not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the garden, the forbidden tree. These things were in operation way before that. Well, when it says sin is, uh, rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, it means you can't get anything more like the devil. Most Christians wouldn't even think of going to a seance or an occult service or some kind of practice or something like that. But rebellion is an everyday thing for them. Well, the Bible says they're equal. It says the same thing as far as God's concerned. You see, our legal system that was designed to execute justice, provide for justice for mankind, it's become a game where somebody uses the technicality of the law to make things work the way that they wanted to work. It has nothing to do with justice. I learned in our court situations over the, the building and, and contractors and all that kind of stuff, there is no justice system. It's a legal system. And it's whoever works the legal system, massages the laws and, and takes advantage of cutting the corners here and there and, and, and uh, utilizes a word or a phrase to the greatest advantage. They're the ones that come out on top. It has nothing to do with right and wrong. Well, that's part of lawlessness. And that's where our whole system is going. Look at what the Supreme Court has done here. Just here recently. There's no way you can look at the Constitution. And look at the cases standing before it. And say, well, according to the Constitution. Which is based on the, the foundation of our country. Then we have to rule this way. No, instead they're throwing out what the Constitution says. And making judgments according to what they want. Uh, or what they think is politically expedient. Well, that's lawlessness. It's not somebody standing in the streets with a gun and refusing to, to bow down to the government or anything like that. It's just this undercurrent. It's the spirit of iniquity. It's the spirit of Antichrist. And the further and further this thing goes, and I don't know how much further it can go, folks, but the further and further this goes before Jesus comes back for the church, the worse and worse it's going to get. Don't be surprised. Don't hang your hat that something's going to put the brakes on it and turn things around. It won't. The Bible already tells us. Now, you can choose not to believe the Bible and come up with your own opinion or idea if you want to. That's, uh, that's up to you. But when it goes the way the Bible says, don't be shocked. Because it is going to go that way. There's a lawlessness to our system. There's a lawlessness to this day and age that we live in. That we've got to guard against. Because it is the spirit of the world. It's, good. it's controlled by the prince of the spirit of the air. And it'll get into the church if we're not careful. One of the things that the Bible says about the, the last day church is that people will reject sound doctrine. Heaping to themselves teachers having itching ears. In other words, they'll gather to themselves people that'll say what they want to say. Well, folks, that's exactly what the Supreme Court's doing where the, some of these rulings are concerned. They're just doing what they want to do based on what they think public opinion is. Has nothing to do with truth has nothing to do with the boundaries. has nothing to do with the Constitution. It has to do with what somebody thinks. This is what we ought to do. 
Well, in the same way, one of the, the, uh, uh, one of the warnings that both Paul and Peter give to the church is the, is the judgment that comes on those that refuse governments. In other words, the spirit of refusing control. It's the spirit of lawlessness. It's the spirit of antichrist. And that's, part of, that's the underlying message behind what Paul is saying. He's saying don't get involved in that. You might think you have a just cause, and Christians do. You can make a real religious case for here's why we need to stand up and overthrow the government or do whatever. Paul said that's not the way the Holy Ghost is going to lead you. Because civil governments, even if there are evil and wicked people in, in those positions of power, those government offices were set up by God to benefit mankind. God's not going to work against himself. Okay, finally to the last point, starting in verse 11. The last point is that the church should awaken. The first point is submit yourself to government authorities. The second point is the, re- the, the walk in the love of God, and here's the result of love. The result of love is that it fulfills the law. It brings you to the same place the Old Testament law was supposed to or, or would have if we believed it and acted on it, and that is love your neighbor as yourself. And finally, the last point, the third of the three points, is the church should awake because Jesus is coming back soon. Verse 11, And that, knowing that the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. He's talking about Jesus' return. The night is far spent and the day is at hand. Now, Paul is going to start an illustration here, and he uses it several times. Uh, For example, in... um, uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 35, it says, uh, Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. The theme that, or the illustration that Paul uses is that the church is in, because Jesus has departed and he's seated at the right hand of the Father, there, that we're in nighttime. Now, that doesn't mean there is no light. He tells us to put on the armor of light. He tells us to walk, Jesus said, we're the light of the world. But if you think about it, you don't need light in the daytime. You need light when it's dark. And so even Jesus used the example of being the light of the world, implying that the, that the time that we're here on the earth is nighttime. Paul expands on that. He said the night is now far spent. In other words, the night's almost over. The time when Jesus has departed and been gone is almost over, and the day is fast approaching. He talks about Jesus returning for the church as being the day when Jesus will appear in his glory. The night is far spent, and the day is at hand. Let us therefore, because Jesus is coming soon, let us therefore cast off the works of darkness, and let us put on the armor of light. Now, there's a. Uh, any of you know anything about? Um, well, uh, let me ask it this way. You know, I assume everybody knows that the doctrine of the rapture is not universally accepted worldwide in the church. You're aware of that, don't you? Most of us are more aware that there's an argument about when the rapture occurs, whether it's before the tribulation, in the middle of the tribulation, or at the end of the tribulation. But the fact is, not all of the church, maybe even a minority of the church, believes in the rapture at all. And one of the um, arguments against the rapture, because there is no word rapture in the New Testament, and that's one of the things people say, well, the word's not even in there. How can you claim that there's a rapture? And uh, if you do some study about it, you'll find out that in, uh, in uh, generations past, uh, somebody came up with the idea and is an argument against the rapture, the doctrine of the rapture at all, um, is that uh, there was a lady by the name of uh, Martha 
McDonald, I think her name was. She had a vision in 1830 of Jesus coming back for the church. Well, that wasn't preached anywhere, at least not anywhere where she was. And it made great big news. I mean, everybody, uh, she told about the vision and the, the detail that she gave about the vision made people realize that, that, man, this was something supernatural, but does that mean this is the way that it's going to work and so forth? So there's great controversy, stirred up great controversy in the church. Um, and uh, so much so that uh, some uh, generation or two following, there was a Southern Baptist minister that offered $500 if anybody could find any teaching of um, the rapture prior to Miss McDonald's vision in 1830. Well, he had to pay up because Darby, John Nelson Darby, who was the founder of the um, Plymouth Brethren, um, wrote extensively in 1825, I believe it was, about the rapture of the church. And then after he was uh, had to pay up on the first one, then he said, well, okay, then if anybody can find anything written or any historical evidence of the, of the rapture, the doctrine of the rapture in the church before 1825 with um, Darby, then I'll pay another $500. I'll pay $500 for that. that. He's trying to prove that it was a new, in his day, it would have been relatively new doctrine, and it wasn't biblically supported. Well, they found some documents from 1700 and something. And then they've, now they've gone back and found documents from the first century uh, fathers, some of the writings of the first century fathers. And if you take that with what Paul says, the doctrine of Jesus returning for the church has been from the, since the time Jesus left. And, he's, and the angels told the, the, the disciples, what are you standing here looking up into heaven for? In the same manner that he left, he's coming back again. That's where the doctrine of the rapture first starts where the angels say Jesus is coming back again just the way he left. And he left by floating up into the air in a cloud. Well, for that reason, the apostles, several of them, use the return of Jesus as an incentive for the church to wake up and see what days and the hour that we live in. Now, when Paul was writing this, he's not uh, but about uh, seven or eight years from being crucified when Nero burned Rome and blamed it on the Christians and, and took it out on Paul and, and Peter publicly. He's, his, uh, his end is to be destroyed by the very civil government that he's just told everybody that they need to obey. There's very um, uh, his, historical evidence would indicate that there are very few uh, regimes or, or governments or countries that have persecuted the Christians more than, than the Romans did, especially at the end, toward the end of, uh, of Roman rule. And yet here he is saying, we need to realize what the time is that we live in. Now remember, Jesus had a real argument with the Jews about this because he said, you Jews look at the weather, you can predict the weather by what it does the evening before. You see a red sky in the evening, you know what the weather is going to be like the next day. He said, you see a wind coming up and you know what the weather's going to be the next day. He said, why don't you do that spiritually? Why don't you discern the times spiritually just like you do naturally where the weather is concerned? Well, why didn't they? They could have. It's not that they were blinded. It's not that God blinded them or kept them from being able to know what the day or the hour was that they lived. And in fact, many of the Jewish leaders, many of the Pharisees, uh, well, not the Pharisees, but the council. Not, not all the council was Pharisees. But many of the council members 
uh, Jewish council members believed in Jesus, but they wouldn't confess him because they were afraid of, of the, uh, the backlash or the repercussions of the rest of the council. In other words, many of the Jewish leaders in Jesus' day did recognize the signs of the times, but they wouldn't step out and, and proclaim him as the Messiah. Well, in the same way, Paul is saying some, uh, well, what would it be, 35 years after that point in time, after Jesus was crucified, Paul now begins to say, we need to discern, we the church need to discern the times that we live in and realize that the time to, uh, for Jesus' return is short. And folks, that was 2,000 years ago. Now, what happens is this. Every generation, every generation thinks that Jesus is coming back before they die. It's been that way since Paul, I guess. Everybody thinks that. And, uh, and, and certainly there are things that we could support every generation. At least something would support the idea. But not everything supports the idea. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, why would the Holy Ghost tell Paul to encourage and warn the church to wake up because Jesus is coming soon 2,000 years before we read it? Was it for the people in Paul's day? Or was it for the people in our day or the people in the day that Jesus comes back? Who's it for? Well, I think it's for everybody. We could certainly say in principle it should be for everybody. But there is going to be a generation that Jesus comes back. The question we have to identify and ask ourselves is, is that us? Legitimately, not just because we don't want to die. I don't think anybody really wants to die. So the idea of being caught up in the rapture is a whole lot better than, you know, dying at home in your bed or whatever the case might be in the hospital or whatever. I don't know that anybody's really got that part planned out. Just doesn't seem the way that we work, you know. And so we all like to think from a standpoint, uh, from an emotional standpoint, if nothing more than just convenience, wouldn't it be great to be the, the, the ones that Jesus raptures? But there's a real question to answer, and that is, are we living in the times that Jesus could come back? And folks, I don't see, I'm no Bible scholar, I'm no Bible expert, but I read a lot. And I can't see from anybody's readings, anybody's writings, anybody's uh, preachings or, or whatever. Uh, and and of, of everything I've read, of everything I've seen in the Bible, of everything I've seen that anybody else has preached about from the Bible. And I, I don't believe everything that everybody preaches, but I, I judge it by the word just like you should, me, or every, uh, me and everybody else. But I don't see anything that's yet to be done. There's not one more thing to be done. I'd like to think, and I do think, I do believe this, that there is still an outpouring of the glory of God before Jesus returns. But it's not like he can't return before what we think that glory being poured out is realized. Because you need to realize this. There are more people saved and alive on the earth today than have been in all the days of the church before this. So if we talk about the glory of God bringing more people into the kingdom of God than ever before, there are more Christians saved right now than have ever, been, ever lived on the face of the earth prior to this point. So from God's standpoint, he could say, well, I said the, the early in the latter rain was going to bring people into the kingdom of God. There's a greater population in the kingdom of God than has ever been in the history of mankind. Well, now, that doesn't fit what I think about when I think about the glory of God being poured out. Does it you? 
I think about signs and wonders and miracles in, in such magnitude that it just sweeps gazillions of people into the kingdom of God. But that may not be what the Bible is talking about when it talks about the glory of the Lord. It could mean any number of things. And I'm not the one that decides what it is. Now, if, if I get appointed to that job, I will let you know. And I, I, I can say with all candor and honesty that I think God should take my position on this and, and make it work my way. I've got a great plan. But that doesn't mean it's God's plan. So I'm just simply saying this. In my opinion, as much as I want to see some things that we haven't yet seen, in my opinion, there is not one thing left to keep Jesus from coming back now. So this is more true than even in the day that Paul wrote it. Let me read it again. Verse 12, the night is far spent and the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. In other words, he says, because Jesus is coming back, live right. Now, he's told us how to live right. He told us how to let our spirit dominate our flesh. He told us how to use the, the power of the Holy Ghost to overcome the desires of the flesh and so forth in previous chapters. So he says, let us walk honestly. Well, that'd be a new twist for the church, wouldn't it? He wrote to the Ephesians and said, put away lying. Why would he have to tell Christians to quit lying? Because people are still yielding to their flesh. Let us walk honestly as in the day. In other words, walk the same way you would as if Jesus was here already. Not in riding and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying. You know what riding and, riding and drunkenness is. Chambering means cohabitation. It's talking about people shacking up together and talking about sexual sin. It's usually used, this word is usually used in connection with lasciviousness. Wantonness means excess. It means absence of restraint. Not in strife and in being, but... Put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now notice what Paul says. Very, very few times does Paul identify Jesus in this way. He calls him by his full name. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And make not provision or forethought for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. Paul is saying and encouraging the, the church, encouraging you and me. Because Jesus is coming back. Let that be an incentive to live right. So that we can be proud of letting our spirits dominate our flesh when Jesus returns. Folks, there is a great reward waiting for us in heaven. If we put spiritual things first. Eternal things first. And don't make provision for the flesh. It seems to me, you can judge this for yourself in your own situation, in your own experience. But it seems to me that the only thing that holds us back from really, really, really wanting Jesus to return are things in the flesh that we want to fulfill before he gets here. If not that, why are we not standing on the edge of time looking for Jesus to return? And that's what Paul says. He says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Walk as if he's already here. And don't make provision. Don't even think or make plans for the flesh. 
If that was true in Paul's day 2,000 years ago, how much more true should it be for us? Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it's true. Thank you for the privilege that we have to walk in victory. Father, I thank you for the privilege to live in these last days. It seems to me that these last days are the most important days of the church. They're days when we have an opportunity to show the world like never before the difference between God and the devil, the difference between eternal life and spiritual death. Lord, let us be inspired by the soon return of Jesus. Quicken our hearts, Lord, so that we would know like we've never known before, that we would see like we've never seen before just how close it is for Jesus to return. Lord, let that be an inspiration to each and every one of us to put spiritual things first and to not make provision for our flesh. That we would lay aside the distractions of this life and the desires of our bodies and we would live according to the truth and that we'd walk in the spirit. That we would put on the armor of light and be a light in the midst of the darkness that is increasing until the end. Thank you, Father, for the victory that we have in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.